right, Jack Universe. This is an emotional one. We talk with a man whose story I really was able to grasp and feel emotionally via social media, which to me is a rarity, given the rather divisive and frankly shallow nature of most of social media today. His family's story is an incredible testament to the strength of this man, the power of hope, and the advancement of medicine. If you are listening on the podcast only, consider hopping on the YouTube channel to see this lovely Imani in person. All right, so we'll uh, we'll kick it off here. So I'm, uh, I'm Brandon Lawrence, emergency medicine doc, one of the co-hosts for Just a Couple of Dudes Jack podcast. And I'm Frank Lewandowski III, Frank 3NP, one of the co-hosts of Jack's podcast. And we're going to apologize in advance. Frank went on a last-second vacation and is in the lavish Williams, Arizona, where his service is just, well, dog shit. So he's, uh, <laughs> he's dropping in and out. Hopefully we'll just have, you know, audio that can last and just we won't see his pretty face no pretty face <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh as you guys know the listeners one of our pillars of our our podcast is honoring and promoting uh good men we feel that you know women for the most part already do a good job of this they're strong leaders they're open with their emotions and and us men really kind of suck at it and need to pick it up and you know our slack on that end uh celebs athletes politicians they all you know fall grossly flat in this department they uh we need to really promote, you know, real people um, to be these role models. And uh, this week, our man of the week is you, Kram. You're a physician, husband, father, and you went under. You sorry, and you underwent one of the most terrifying um, situations that that a parent can ever endure, and you handled it with disgrace. Right? You never lost hope despite your daughter being discharged to hospice care with this terminal diagnosis. But you know, we'll get to that in, in just a minute. Um, and I, I think that if everyone was able to just um, view the way you acted while under this degree of pressure and emotion, and I just feel that kind of given our climate currently, that just the world would be a better place at this point. Thank you. Um, You're too kind. And uh, we got introduced to each other in this physician forum and, and this entire forum, which was thousands of doctors, really followed along with your story and updates on bated breath. And I, I actually continued showing my wife all of your updates and read her all of your guys' stories and she was just so um, uplifting and awesome and uh, so I want to you know thank you for coming on and you know let's get going. So no, you want to introduce you, yourself. Thank you for having, and, you for having me. I, I, I can't uh, you know tell you how much I appreciate that A you would invite me on here. Uh, B that Frank is tuning in when he's on vacation that uh, he's wasting his vacation spending time with me right now uh, but honestly thank you. Yeah, and as some of the listeners would know, we did that um, shirt drive after the How to Rona doc, Dr. Steve Sample was on, and these were the proceeds that were going to honor Amani, which is Karam's daughter, and we just today donated 1300 to uh, St. Jude's, and there's still some oh, more people in that we'll probably be able to send a little bit more once everything's processed. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I didn't even know that. <laughs> I yeah, we, I sent it in uh, around like uh, noon today. Once I oh my gosh, thank you so much. Yeah, we sent it in under her name and on your link, so we're pretty excited for it. Oh, thank you so much, guys. Um, so uh, without further ado, let's why don't you introduce yourself, kind of what your field is, and, and let's, uh, let's, let's talk Amani. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Cora Mitabdin. I am a uh, nephrologist at the Hofstra, Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine uh, based out of Southside Hospital in uh, Bayshore, New York in Long Island. Um, I spent, you know, past decade or so of my life in New York City uh, going through med school, residency, fellowship, whatnot, and uh, 
I guess you could say converted city boy. And, you know, once we found out my wife was pregnant, we did the whole suburban thing. So left the city, bought a house in Long Island, did everything I told myself in my 20s I would never do. Um, and yeah, exactly. We, we bought a house, we renovated the house, uh, we moved out to the suburbs where we knew nobody. Yeah. Uh, and we started that, you know, what I was excited for, I guess, the next chapter in my life of having that dad life sort of thing. And, and uh, I embraced it in for honor, years. In honor of dad life, I wore my daddest shirt. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Randy Macho Man Savage. <laughs> elbow drop. Uh, so this is my nicest one. So I wore it, it in honor of you know, that. I have so much like dad vibe appreciation for that shirt right now. If I could show you my white shorts that I'm wearing, uh, I wish I was wearing my New Balance sneakers right now, but uh, that's that's for what I'm. <laughs> Your white New Balances is that what you're saying? My white New Balances, one for mm-hmm. lawn mowing, one for driving, one for the night. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amazing the change that happens. Always so clean. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's, it's change. like an immediate change too, yeah. right? Like it, it, really, even when you're discussing having kids and you, you might not even be pregnant yet you like you kind of start nesting already so like if you can see my backyard i have this playhouse i built the kids i have yeah this, all this other stuff that you know and uh literally it was like me and my wife we didn't we didn't plan our first one but as soon as we found out which was like i think she was four weeks pregnant my wife just yeah and it just kicked into gear and we just started you know going crazy and yeah it's, oh no i mean that's it, it was like a, it was a very i mean for us we you know we bought our house it was going to be this huge project and we were like okay we can you know move slow through the house we don't have to do everything right now and then i think two weeks into the renovation we found out my wife was pregnant and uh that's when we were like i think we have to do everything now before uh you know before the baby comes because we're not having our house be a construction zone when this happens (laughs) no you need all the sleep you can get yeah so it turned into like a way bigger project than we thought it would and uh that's what happened with that. So, you know, I, and you talk to any of my friends and they can tell you, I, I've been preparing for this for the past decade of my life. So <laughs> uh, we got married super young. I think me and my wife got married in 2011, uh, you know, right in the middle of medical school in our, our really early 20s. Um, but we waited to have kids uh, just because, you know, in medicine, there's no good time, right? You know, medical school is not a good time. Residency is not a good time. Fellowship's not a good time. Uh, so finally, I think after a decade, we were like, we should probably have a kid now. <laughs> oh, so by design, you guys waited until Amani. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we totally tried to wait as long as we could, I guess you could say, just yeah. to find, you know, a little bit more of a stable time in our life. Unfortunately for my wife, she was still like in her final year of fellowship yeah. uh, when that happened. But do? I'm sorry. And what is her uh, specialty? Yep. She's a non-invasive cardiologist. Sweet. So she's cardiology, I'm nephrology. We are like the nerdiest couple known to men. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine so. You just need a little endocrine like, <laughs> doc and a uh, pulmonologist. Invite them over and you guys can just have Yeah, it's, it's so weird too. My, uh, my partner at work, you know, in nephrology, his wife's a cardiologist also. So it's just like a very weird dynamic that, you know, every nephrologist is married to a cardiologist, I guess. <laughs> that's pretty funny man well they regulate yeah. each other right i think that's what we learned in physiology yeah. i'm a dummy r doc so like i i i don't know i remember some of the buzzwords but you know <laughs> they're not sick right 
Yeah, all right, so <laughs> yeah, uh, this potassium's a little high. We we need a little help. I don't know why. <laughs> exactly, that's my favorite line. We need a little help. <laughs> yeah, right. it's red on the computer. It's red right. on the, the red labs are up. I gotta get somewhere. <laughs> exactly, the labs are red. Let's. We need a little help here. And then, like ninety percent of the time, uh, well, what medications are there on? Uh, <laughs> Go uh, do. <laughs> yeah. Well, do they follow our group or do they follow the other group? Uh, not sure. I don't know. Yeah. Weirdly enough, man, I had this case yesterday. This guy's creatinine in four days went from one <laughs> to eight and a half. Nice. Yeah. From how bad? Five... How bad did you not put a foley in before you called the nephrologist? <laughs> no, this guy had uh, bilateral. Uh, kidney stones that were greater than wow. I think like 12 millimeters each. <laughs> Holy cow, 12 millimeters? Yeah. No, there was no <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, so that was, that was a whole thing. I thought he had yeah. all sorts of other. He, he was like, he looked awful. He had low back pain. I, thought he was COVID, dissecting, man. COVID. <laughs> I was like, this guy's dissecting his granny's eight. I still got a good CTA. <laughs> we need to make it yelled at. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Whatever. All right, so uh, let's let's get to it. So I remember, yeah, insert month. When when did this whole thing start with you? This whole thing happened on December fifteenth. December. I was going to say January. Twenty nineteen. Yeah. Right. December twenty nineteen. We have this, lack of a better term, this physician forum where we all kind of post uh, different medical things and kind of comment on it. And um, he posts this. This I remember. He it was an odd behavior that I think Amani was doing. Where she was like looking to one direction, right? Yeah. And, yeah. The thing I kind of found profound about that is you didn't have to be a doctor to know that was abnormal. Like you just had to be an attentive father. Yeah. That always kind of stuck with me. Like you knew this kid, you knew this was abnormal and she was so young in life. Now take me to that moment. Let's hear about it. So pretty much, I guess you could say, you know, she was born at the beginning of November. So at this point she was about five weeks old when this happened, me and my wife started noticing that our daughter was starting to have almost like fixated, a fixated gaze downwards. She was starting to look down and it would stay down. And then all of a sudden she would come to and her eyes would like, you know, go back up to normal quickly. And it, you know, it was, it was a fixation looking downwards in, uh, in her gaze. So we knew that in the back of my mind, I knew something was not right. And so we posted it on the physician uh, forum that's like a dad forum. And then there's another physician forum that's a mom forum. Uh, and, you know, we were getting a ton of opinions. I remember on the mom group that my wife is in with like 70,000 uh, female physicians, there were so many people saying, hey, I'm a neurosurgeon. This looks like an emergency. You need to take her to the emergency room right now. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, kind of similar mixed sentiment from uh, the dad group that, you know, some people were like, oh, you're just, you know, being crazy or, or uh, you know, you're a first time dad, your kid's pretty cute. Or, you know, another comments would be like, I would just get it checked because something doesn't look right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in the back of my mind, I, that's all I needed was that little push. And I think for my wife too, she just needed the push because me by trade, I I tend to be more on the anxious side, especially when it comes to my kid or something like this. My wife tends to be a little bit more on the chilled out side of things where, you know, uh, she doesn't overreact to things. She's a very like logical, calm person. And I'm the opposite of that, I guess you could say. So, you know, once I saw that my wife was like, okay, we can take her in and get this in. 
I guess my internal freak out started happening because my wife is now justifying, yeah, something's wrong too. Mm. So um, I happened to be on call that day. That was a, actually rewind. This was happening kind of that whole week. On Friday, it was getting a little worse. We went to take her to her pediatrician and it was one of those situations where, you know, you're a doctor dad and you don't want to overstep your boundaries with the pediatrician. So, you know, whatever they said, I said from day one, uh, we're going to listen to, um, you know, didn't really think much of it. It was, uh, her head circumference was growing and, and this fixation was happening. But again, it was, I don't want to say it was downplayed, but it felt like it was a little downplayed. Uh, and then Saturday, we posted this stuff, Saturday night and Sunday morning in both of those Facebook groups. And Sunday morning, I happened to be on call, and I called up one of my friends at the hospital where I work at. He's uh, chairman of radiology over there. Um, and he said, you know what, bring her in. I'm on call too. We won't even register her. I'll just bring the ultrasound machine into my office. Wow. We'll just do a quick scan of her head. And after I'm done with her, I'll scan your head to make sure you're not crazy. And, um, you know, we, we brought her in Sunday morning. We took two cars because I had a full list of patients to see and consoles to see that day uh, at the hospital. And I think it was like eight o'clock or nine o'clock in the morning on, on Sunday. And, you know, the technician came in with the radiologist and everything was, you know, funny and laughter. This is all I kind of remember. Uh, and then the second she put the probe on, on my daughter, it was almost like a stark silence, you know? She was like, ah, we probably need to go into the MRI because I'm seeing like a unilateral hydrocephalus, which means there's like swelling on one side of her brain. You know, and immediately my heart sank because I, I didn't even think unilateral hydrocephalus tends to be worse than if it's on both sides. I didn't even think about that. I was like, oh no, now she needs to get like a surgery. Now she needs a shunt. And I think I'm posting this stuff in real time being like, right. you know, has anyone had a shunt before? And blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then, and that's you know, great because you go from, from bad news, like in your head, worst case scenario to very quickly, a much worse case scenario. It, exactly. And that was the next step. So then, yeah. you know, this was the next thing that happened following this was probably without a doubt, one of the worst memories or instances that I will ever have in my life that kind of slowly replays itself like a movie in my head, which was uh, they needed to get an MRI on my daughter because they, you know, found this swelling in her brain. Uh, I'm trying to like, you know, keep the language a little easier for listeners to understand. No, say whatever you want, emotions. Okay, so she had like this one-sided hydrocephalus, unilateral hydrocephalus. We put her in the MRI and my wife had to go into the MRI with her to kind of keep her calm because, again, she's like a non-sedated five-week-old baby yeah. into this MRI tunnel. So my wife went in the you know, room with her, and I'm on the other side of the glass sitting with the MRI technician. And as the MRI is coming up on the, on the computer screen, you know, the image is essentially resulting. The MRI tech just kind of turns and looks at me, and I look at the screen, silence, and I see this humongous tumor uh, on my daughter's scan. And I look through the glass and my wife is literally in the MRI, like trying to keep my daughter calm. They're like, she's smiling and like, you know, laughing and kind of holding her down. And it's on the other side, it's like complete normalcy. And then where I'm at, it's like a death sentence because, you know, that image was something that I don't wish for like anyone to ever have to experience with their own, own child seeing on a screen. 
And, you know, being a doctor, you know too much and you know what that means and you know what the prognosis is. And all of a sudden, things just start going on in your head with, what is this? Why, you know, there's no way she's going to survive. Immediately, first thing in my head, there's no way she's going to survive this. She was already herniating. She had midline shift on, uh, on the MRI. The mass was humongous. And then, you know, we, I feel like I like collapsed outside the room. I just kind of left uh, the MRI text room and just collapsed outside because there was still, I think, 10 or 15 minutes left in the actual MRI to do all the different kinds of, uh, you know, imaging sets of, with contrast and flare and this and that, whatever cuts that they had to get. And then when it came time for my wife to come out, she was holding him money. And I just told her like, put her in the car seat, like put her in the car seat because, and you have to sit down. And I, I remember just telling her and again, just pin drop silence. Like my wife just completely like zoned out, no words, looking into space, no emotion, just dark, uh, darkness. And we literally, you know, they were like, she has to be admitted to this hospital right now, which is, it's one of the bigger hospitals of the, I guess you could say of the region that we work at, but it's not like the biggest, it's probably the second biggest, I guess you could say. Okay. So the children's hospital is about 45 minutes away that's affiliated with us. Uh, and you know, you know how this goes. If someone gets admitted through the ER and she's already midline shift herniating and this and that, that transfer is not going to happen and she's going to die there. That's literally what was playing in my head. So I told them, no, she's breathing okay. Her vitals are fine. We literally threw her in the car and we drove 45 minutes to the children's hospital ourselves just to get her there. Um, on the way to the children's hospital, again, if there's ever a time in your life when you have to pull strings or pull favors, this was the time. Uh, the CEO of that hospital happens to be a nephrologist in our group. He was one of my mentors in fellowship. Uh, so, you know, you never, I, I, I never used to call him or anything like that because he's like the CEO of the hospital. What is, you know, I'm just a lowly nephrologist. He happens to be a nephrologist also. And I called him hysterical saying, I don't know anyone in neurosurgery, but you have to literally get the best neurosurgeon for my daughter right now because we're on our way to Cohen's. And the CEO called, I guess, the chairman of pediatric neurosurgery for the whole health system who came in from Manhattan. And within hours, my daughter had emergency neurosurgery um, at Cohen's Children's Hospital in New York City uh, with two of like the world, you know, two of New York's best neurosurgeons. Yeah. And just to pause there, because not everyone's, you know, medical that, that listens to this, a pediatric neurosurgeon is rare. Like these are kind yeah. of the baddest ass of the baddest ass doctors. Correct. And that you were able to get one of the two best ones in New York is just, that's incredible. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those situations where it's your child. So, yeah. you know, if I, if there's a time to, if I have the CEO of the hospital's number in my phone and I'm lucky enough that he happens to be a nephrologist within our faculty group, right. uh, I'm going to call him when it comes to, you know, Cash my daughter can in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so essentially she went into emergency surgery. Uh, she went into DIC in surgery intraoperatively. It was supposed to be like, you know, an eight hour surgery where they were going to attempt to remove the, the, the mass. 
And they told us before she may not survive the surgery because it's very vascular. There's a lot of blood vessels going into there and she's going to bleed. She, they expect her to bleed. So uh, the anesthesiologist came out and told us that she was literally pushing blood through, you know, syringes throughout the entire procedure that my daughter had like four times her blood volume replaced during that surgery. Wow. And just for listeners, DIC is this kind of odd um, syndrome you get that you both bleed and clot. And it's just really kind of a nasty thing that you get from traumas and really, you know, bad things that are going on within the body that generally has, again, now a very poor outcome on top of what's already happening. Right. And so at that point, you know, like I said, it was supposed to be an eight hour surgery. I want to say it like the three and a half hour to four hour mark that both of the surgeons came out gray faced and I knew something was wrong. And uh, they essentially told us that unfortunately she bled out during surgery and she was, they were only able to get about 60% of the tumor out. And so they just had to close her because that was the safest thing that they could do. Uh, and that we should just spend in the nicest way possible. Truthfully, I, I, I can't even relive those moments. It was like, you, whatever time you have left with her, go spend with her. We don't think she's going to make it through the night kind of thing. Mm. Um, you know, she was on a breathing tube for, I, I think, two or three days, something like that. And uh, she was extubated. And again, you know, oncology told us over there that there was only one other case that they had seen, I think, in the past few years. And that child, I think, survived just a couple of months uh, with getting like intense treatment. So at that point, you know, we, we brought her home on hospice because no one else really had anything else to offer her. And, and we got official second opinions from, you know, about five or six of the biggest regional uh, children's cancer hospitals. Um, and pretty much everyone said the same thing, that there's nothing that can be done. Uh, quoting a study, you know, that I, I guess for us, you know, now looking back, I just have that stuck in my head. It's called baby pog. It was from like the early nineties. That was like, you know, you can do all this intense treatment, but there's really a horrible clinical outcome that if you do like four months of chemo, the median survival is like five months or something like that. Right. Um, so on December, this was December 15th on December 21st, we were discharged home on hospice. Um, Imani was deteriorating in front of our eyes. At this point, she probably hadn't eaten or drank anything, you know, no milk in, in days. She was skin and bones, pale. I mean, I think you remember the pictures at that time. It was just, it was horrible. Um, literally horrible. So in our culture, uh, you know, I'm, my background uh, is my, my family's from Pakistan, we're Muslim. You do this uh, kind of religious ceremony when your baby is born, uh, where you do like a naming ceremony. It's almost like a baptism, like a Muslim baptism or something like that. And uh, we were planning this huge thing in February with like 300 people. So knowing that she had like a poor prognosis, we had it for that Thursday, just like whoever can come, come. I don't even know who I called, who I texted, who came, who didn't. We just had like a ton of people at our house served food and did this kind of ceremonial thing uh, just to celebrate her life. Uh, and, you know, again, zero hope. She's now starting to get febrile at home, having fevers. Her wound is starting to leak. Her head size is getting bigger with fluid and it's horrible. So we take her back to the hospital for her follow-up appointment. And at that point they told us, you have days to maybe two weeks of a prognosis. And 
Um, we drove home again in silence. This was on Christmas Eve on December 24th. And I literally pulled into my driveway and again, out of a movie, I had a call on my phone from a Memphis phone number, uh, you know, a 901 area code phone number. And I answered the phone and it was Dr. Santosh Upadhyay, who is one of the neuro-oncologists at St. Jude uh, Children's Research Hospital. And everyone has been telling me now at this point for the past, you know, nine days, your daughter is going to die, your daughter is going to die, blah, blah, blah. She's on hospice and, you know, we are dead on the inside. And for the first time we heard hope and he said, we received her chart, we went through her pathology. Uh, you know, I sent slides from New York City to Tennessee for the pathologist over there to review. And he said, we have a potential cure for this. And he said, I've cured uh, 12 kids of this, you know, in the past, I think 13 years or something since they've had it. And he goes, we have a protocol here that's considered a curative protocol. There's no guarantees, but his words to me were exactly, we have to try, right? Uh, she's so little. Mm -hmm. And um, how, how did you yeah. guys get connected there? Wasn't that, didn't someone suggest that on our forum too? Yeah, so there's two, uh, two people who I literally owe my daughter's life to from there. Uh, number one is Asim Chaudhary from PDG. Uh, believe it or not, our families have been friends for 40 years, and I didn't even realize that connection until I wow. spoke to him on the phone. Um, his, my mom was his mom's attending in residency, actually. That's crazy. And yeah, so that was back in Albany. So um, they worked together for a long, long time. Our dads are like super, super close friends. Um, so he is a uh, pediatric neuroradiologist at Le Bonner Children's Hospital, which is the St. Jude uh, affiliate neurosurgical site in Memphis. And then uh, Dr. Holly Spraker Perlman from Physician Mom Group, uh, she is a palliative physician at St. Jude, and she private messaged my wife and said, uh, if you know, your daughter has this pathology, you need to speak to Dr. Santosh Upadhyay. I would trust my own children with him. And within an hour of, I guess, that message, he called us on our cell phone. Wow. And that's how it started. How fortuitous. Yeah. So, that's crazy. So to me, this is two movie quality moments, right? So the <laughs> first one is you're sitting looking at this MRI screen at your family that's acting almost normal despite sitting in this MRI tube where you said she's smiling and laughing and holding yeah. her and comforting her while your world is crashing just on the other yeah. side of this clear piece of glass. Yeah. And now you're you're telling me, you know, you get this phone call that's, you guys have already probably come close to just kind of giving up and now you have this, this new hope and it's like the turning point in the movie and it's just like, this seems just such a was, crazy like story. It was like we had scraped rock bottom, you know, like yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that appointment in New York on Christmas Eve, you know, she was, she looked horrible, absolutely, absolutely horrible. And in fact, we had imaging scheduled right after that appointment just to see where we were at. She was so bad, we were told like, there's no point in going for the imaging, just go home, like go home, enjoy the time you have with her. And we threw in the towel. That was, for us, that was, I mean, as a physician, you know, right? Like, you know, if, if what the prognosis is and we, we didn't want to torture our daughter. That was the bottom line thing. I'm not going to put my daughter through, you know, nonsense. If, if for my own selfish reasons, 
to extend the inevitable. We were, we had agreed upon that, accepted that, and, and she was doing terribly. Um, but then, like I said, St. Jude called us in, in a complete 180, right when we were told there's nothing, literally nothing else left to do. Um, and that was on Christmas Eve on December 24th. Wow. So let's, uh, wow. So St. Jude gives you this phone call. What's yep. this conversation afterwards? We're, we're going. The conversation, conversation afterwards was he called me and said, I need you to send me a video of her crying. Just so, you know, in the back of my head, I'm thinking that's because they want to see what her like performance status is right now. Because obviously if she has some like horrible weak cry, they're not going to fly us down to Memphis. And I knew this was our only shot. Hmm. So literally in the car ride, I told you, we pulled into our driveway and we got the phone call. We're sitting in the car. My wife quickly recorded something because my daughter was like shrieking in the back. Thank she God. looked so weak on that video. I told my wife, you're not sending him that video. We're going to put her upstairs on the bed and like get as best of a take of a cry as we can to show her looking better than she was because I didn't care at that point. That was our that was really the only shot. If, if he says we can, you know, she's too dangerous to, for her to fly down, which at that point, truthfully, it probably was, but that was it. What's too dangerous at that point. If your prognosis is two weeks. Is in, death. So. That's, that's exactly right. And that's, that's, that was my well, train of thought. And uh, literally even the day before we flew out, she was like febrile tachycardic. Uh, and we still, and we knew that if we took her to the emergency room here in New York city, we've we've missed that window of opportunity to get to St. Jude. That was uh, that was our Sunday kind of day. And uh, one of my best friends from medical school, I told you we had that naming ceremony, that religious ceremony. So all of my closest friends from life really came over, including one of my closest friends from medical school, who's a general surgeon in Detroit. So he was here, he did her wound dressing that Sunday. And I remember when he unwrapped her head, I mean, he just, he, he didn't freak out because we were there, but I could read his face a hundred percent when he saw, you know, her head, like, yeah. Oh shit. And, and we flew, yeah, literally. And, uh, we flew out the next day on, on Monday and even that was a disaster. <laughs> we'll get into that in a second. I feel like I keep talking. <laughs> You're our guest, man. We're here for your story. It, it seems like nothing. Yeah. It, um, it seems like nothing went well. <laughs> like, you know, it was just one obstacle after another. Yeah, and, and truth You know, with you. And this situation. Right. I mean, nothing, nothing went well. Everything was bad news and everything went opposite of what was supposed to happen. Uh, you know, this, the surgery didn't go well. Her post-op kind of, you know, post-up sort of, you know, how she did after that didn't go well. Uh, and then come, you know, December 30th, uh, you know, we were actually speaking with St. Jude and they were saying, okay, we're going to fly you down after New Year's because this was that awkward time that's, you know, when nothing's going on in the hospital because it was uh, Christmas Eve when we got the phone call saying she's going to be accepted into St. Jude. So he was telling us, we're going to fly you down after New Year's because nothing's really happening in the hospital between Christmas and New Year's. So I was like, we have to come before then because there's no way she's going to survive if we wait longer than this. But I couldn't, I also couldn't say that on the phone because then they would say, oh, she's too sick for you to even come down to begin with. So I had to like, 
play my cards right in order to get her there earlier, if that makes sense. And I don't know how I did that, but I just kind of was like, we need to come earlier. I don't know if I, I he got the hint or or what, but we ended up settling on getting there for December 30th, which was that Monday. And uh, I think I, I think he knew in the back of his mind too that like after New Year's would be kind of late. And so Monday- Who's had to be the longest few days of your life? Just, just waiting. Truthfully, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I was dead on the inside from December 15th until Christmas Eve. Once St. Jude called us, I, there's no way to describe this other than telling you that imagine losing everything and then you have one sliver of hope. That was enough to kind of give me a second kick or a second run. And whether it was a false hope adrenaline or, you know, whatever it was, that gave me enough energy to kind of turn back on, I guess you could say, because from December 15th to the 24th, I was, I was done. So was my wife. Like, I got to imagine though, you, you probably wanted to just start walking there just to be closer. Like, cause I can't imagine just that four or five day lag where you have this, this hope, this little something you're, you're holding onto, but you're just in waiting and holding mode and just, you just, yeah. just want to get there. I'm sure. I mean, not only that, it was like, you know, she was sleeping in between us this whole week and it was, uh, neither of us slept. We were, we were checking on her, making sure she's even breathing at night. And again, that's something I, I don't know how to describe to people in words is just being awake to, to wonder if your child is sincerely alive or not. Right. Cause there's different how, a helicopter parent where you go check on your kid a few times in the middle of the night cause they haven't cried because you're worried right. something's going on versus actually staying up because there's a very good chance your kid is going to stop breathing. Like that's correct. It's, oh, I can't, I can't. And she, and, and here's the, I mean, she was on, she was on full blown hospice at this point. So right. there was like, you know, she was on pain medication. She was not on any, you know, uh, there's no chemo at home and stuff. There's no antibiotic that she's on. Right. Not even knowing she had an infection at this point. So regardless, we got on that plane to Memphis on uh, December 30th and we landed at, uh, in Memphis and, you know, there at the hospital, um, there was another, uh, you know, PDG Fuzzle Yahya who was waiting at the airport, stuffed animal in hand. And I was like, oh my gosh, you, you know, you didn't have to be here. Uh, St. Jude sent an ambulance to pick us up and everything. And he's like, I just wanted to be here. And there's like another kind of, you know, brotherhood moment where people you don't even know just open up their entire world to you. For sure. And, you know, we got to St. Jude. The second we're in patient registration, suitcases in hand, um, they do my daughter's vitals and tachypnic, tachycardic, febrile to 104. And uh, she had a rapid response called on her suitcases in hand at patient registration when we got there. And from that point, she was taken to, I guess, like the St. Jude ER or whatnot. And, you know, very difficult to get IV access in like a six week old child who has completely dehydrated, not eaten in, you know, days. So she had to be transferred from St. Jude to Le Bonheur Children's Hospital, which is their neurosurgical hospital affiliate in Memphis uh, for a neurosurgical wound infection, which we didn't know was happening under there. That's why she was you know, having all this uh, fever and all of this sort of stuff. 
we didn't even know what Le Bonheur was at that point. Um, you know, here I am leaving New York City, which in my mind, cockiness factor thinking is the greatest city in the world for healthcare and medicine. And we have everything here. I'm going to like, you know, rural, deep South, someplace I've never expected to even be in my entire life uh, to pursue care for my child. And now they're telling us that you have to be transferred to a different hospital. So just to pause right there, an infection of a neurosurgical wound itself is another close to fatal, (laughs) fatal diagnosis. Let me, I mean, then we're, we're brought by ambulance from St. Jude to Le Bonheur in the emergency room. She has a lumbar puncture because they have to like check for meningitis, obviously, because it's still a fever for like a child who's six weeks old. It was just like one thing after another. And finally, you know, I think it, it's like 9 p.m. or 8 p.m. at night. We left at 6 a.m. that morning, hadn't eaten all day, you know, adrenaline rushing. I'm not eating breakfast before I leave to go to Memphis. We didn't eat lunch in the ER, this and that. I hadn't eaten in 15, 16 hours. And uh, there comes physician dad group, Awesome Chodhury with Chick-fil-A in the ER. And literally the best meal I have ever eaten in my entire life, me and my wife, like sandwiches, cookies, soda, milkshake. I don't even know what he got us, but like a godsend from just, again, this, this group of people, of strangers who are like, hey, did you eat today? I know you're in the ER. Did you eat today? No, we didn't. And didn't even ask, just brought it. Incredible. Yeah. And uh, so that was night one. That was literally night one in Memphis. Night one of many. Yeah. Night one of uh, nine and a half months. Yeah. Wow. That's an adventure, <laughs> and we're at the very beginning still. Yeah. <laughs> when's, uh, when's episode two of this? No, just kidding. <laughs> I know, right? Part two through six. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I, and I tend to drone on, so please. No, please do, man. Interrupt me, interrupt me, or whatever, because I'm just literally replaying a, a tape in my head. This was. Uh, this was hell, and that's that's. There's no other words to describe it. Let's get cathartic. Yeah. Let's get this out. Hear it all. Thanks for. Yeah, this this story there. gives a lot of hope. I'll tell you honestly. <laughs> and that's what we kind of do, man. Like, um, we try to talk about issues that people normally wouldn't broach, especially with like emotions in men, right? So yeah, this is something that's really, really important to hear. That you're in this vulnerable state. You're still in this vulnerable state, and you're able to talk about it and talk about the fear that was involved in this. I think yeah. that's really important for people to hear. I think that's that's truthfully the only way I was kind of able to get through it was, uh, you know, we'll get into that, but you know, making these posts in the middle of the night at three in the morning when I couldn't I love sleep. Love it because I do nights. I do a lot of nights, and this post would pop up, and I'm like, <laughs> and I hit the, yeah. the love button. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you guys were my cheerleaders. That's that's all I can say. I, I you know, it was rock bottom for a really, really long time, uh, and just being able to kind of voice what you were feeling and have other people out there listening and telling you that, you know, you're doing the right thing. You're a good dad. It's going to be okay. It uh, it made a huge difference. That's amazing. And see, that's that's the importance <laughs> of being able to express yourself and put yourself out there is that you then get the support instead of people thinking, oh, he's fine. You know, yeah. you know he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need those chicken nuggets, right? <laughs> and boom, you got awesome there. I wish I, I wish I remembered this. Now I kind of remember you tagging him to things, but I could have had him kind of surprise you on here and that would be cool, but maybe for part two. <laughs> I, think it was, 
Dude, he was literally like a guardian angel in Memphis for our family. Like, I can't even tell you. Wow. Um, and it's, yeah. it's just crazy you guys had this connection you didn't even know about, and now it's for life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the friends that I made in Memphis are, are lifelong, you know, friends now. It's, uh, it's insane. I think, you know, I talk to them multiple times a day. Uh, because it's family at this point. I mean, you know, they, they were, like I said, gave us everything you can imagine at our lowest point in our life. Uh, and it's, it's really an amazing thing when many of them didn't even know us, I guess. Right. We just followed along at home. It was like our very own little Truman show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so we have night one, she's got yeah. this infection. She gets this surgery. So she had this, exactly. She had, she had surgery. She had this infection that next morning. And I promise I'll speed it up with the timeline. (laughs) The only thing I'm missing is kids bath time. And I'm okay with that. (laughs) He's awesome. Awesome. So uh, next morning, you know, surgical rounds, five o'clock in the morning, we met the surgical resident, neurosurgical resident that night and everything surgical rounds the next morning. Uh, Gentleman walks in takes his shoes off and sits, sits cross-legged on the couch, introduces himself as uh, Dr. Frederick Boop, and he is the president of the American Academy of Neurosurgery. And he is going to be Imani's neurosurgeon here. And he's the chairman of neurosurgery at St. Jude and the chairman of neurosurgery at La Bonner. Oh, that's some credentials, man. I think I think his father was a neurosurgeon. He's a neurosurgeon. I think his his son is in medical school right now himself or something like that. But it's just Family like, business. yeah. If if there's a guy that you want operating on your kid, this is the guy. Wow. Um, and you know, very frank with us from minute one. You know, I think he had to be a little bit more, uh, not not morbid, but. I, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for. Like he didn't want to give us false hope with anything either. Right. Just, Just knowing straight. the gravity of the situation, because at this point, literally everything was against her. Um, but still that array of hope. And, you know, it's one of those situations again, where as a physician, you know too much and you don't want to overstep your own boundaries with, with your own family and this and that. Cause the last thing you want to do is be that annoying doctor relative in the hospital Again, it's your daughter, you have to be her advocate and this and that. But I think at this point, we had left everything really in God's hands or, you know, some higher being's hands, because there's nothing physically in this world that I could do that would make a difference. So we just had to trust the process at this point, because this is way beyond any expertise or any knowledge that I have as a, you know, kidney, adult kidney doctor uh, to do pediatric neurosurgery and neuro-oncology. I'll let the experts handle it. And we, we kind of told them from minute one, we are not going to get involved. Whatever you say we are going to do because you are literally our only hope with any of this. And I can tell you every crazy thing that was probably said or done or said would work did. And that's something that never happens in medicine. And, uh, you know, not something that I want to jinx or, or whatever, but sons of bitches did it that's all i can say i'm trying to picture this guy with no shoes on sitting cross-legged on a on a bed (laughs) when you think neurosurgeon you think tall skinny guy with a bow tie right stuffy right yeah yeah. it's it's an an interesting person 
the most humble, incredible physician. You know, our whole team, Dr. Boop, Dr. Santosh Upadhyay, uh, Dr. Gunjar, uh, even Awesome Children, for that matter, was very much involved in my daughter's care, uh, but he also had to play the friend role, the relative role. Uh, you know, I can't, I have never in my life seen medicine practiced the way it was practiced when it came to my daughter being treated. And, uh, you know, the best way I like to describe it is God walks through the hallways of St. Jude and Le Bonheur. Uh, you really feel that kind of presence of otherworldliness at this place that I have never experienced medicine practiced in this way in such an otherworldly amazing way where they give a damn and you know they give a damn and you have to say something once and it gets done. It's, it's the complete polar opposite of you know, what I'm used to, I yeah. guess, in, in the Northeast with the culture of medicine here. So. Well, I think the culture of medicine you're used to is more of the global, or at least the United States culture of medicine. Like that's what you experience is far from the norm. Yeah. yeah. Right. Wow. So um, my daughter had been, she cleared her infection. We were inpatient for 20 days. We did not sleep outside a hospital couch for 20 days. And meanwhile, so you're clearing the infection for 20 days. You haven't even started the treatment for this cancer yet, right? So the infection took about, I think, a week and a half to clear. So she was on antibiotics. They were actually, you know, that day that he sat cross-legged on day two, he told us in the next couple of days, if she's still persistently febrile and her oxygen levels were going down and all of this also, that he might have to reopen uh, the head wound and do like a washout. And that was also scary because the skull flap that was used, they actually physically drilled her skull and removed it and then placed it back would be gone. So it was going to be a disaster if that was the case. And again, they did it. They, she didn't need that washout. She didn't need that surgery. On day five, they put in a VP shunt uh, and they put in her chemoport uh, that we, I think it was on July 5th or something like that, July 7th, something like that in uh, Le Bonheur. And the day after her VP shunt was placed, which was to decrease the swelling in her brain that's been going on now since December 15th, uh, she had the port placed. She was transferred back to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, I think January 8th. So we didn't get discharged until January 21st, I believe it was. So we were there from December 30th until January 21st between Le Bonheur and St. Jude inpatient, like in the hospital, staying in the hospital. Um, and then finally, she was stable uh, to get discharged. That included her first cycle of chemotherapy, which was after about a week and a half. Wow. So you get discharged to where? So that's the other thing. So here's the incredible thing about St. Jude that I want to plug with every hat and shirt that I'm wearing right now for St. Jude. If there is a place to donate your money, if you have any excess money, whether it is a quarter, whether it is a penny, send it to St. Jude. And I'll tell you why. My daughter is alive because of them. And I am not, uh, you know, in any stressful position because of them also. Uh, the second we got there, uh, they put you in, in a short-term hotel-like place on campus called Tri-Delta House which think of it as like a Marriott extended stay or something like that. And then after one or two weeks, when you figure out your treatment plan, they put you up in their long-term housing. Now, if you're there for like 
three months or so, they put you in something called Ronald McDonald House. If you're there for longer than six months or plan to be there longer than six months, you get an apartment at either a place called Target House or Parcels at Concourse, which is like the newest luxury condominium building in Memphis. Uh, and it's not even, you know, you would think that you're getting these accommodations from a hospital. It's going to be some dorm room like thing. I've got a two bedroom, two bathroom luxury apartment in like the nicest apartment building in Memphis, fully paid for by St. Jude. Wow. Like I never signed a paper. I never had to give a power bill notice. I never had to say, Hey, we need cable. Everything just given fully furnished apartment every week they give you a list of groceries that's sponsored by like, I think Target and Target and Kroger, which is like a local grocery store for anything imaginable you need in an apartment. You just check the box. It's delivered every Monday to your apartment for free. And then every Monday you get $125 on a prepaid credit card to just buy whatever you need. You want to buy toys for your kid. You want to buy groceries for your kid. You want to eat out today. Here it is. And this is all to every single family at St. Jude who's undergoing active treatment. And I love that. So I was a little bit disappointed with only giving kind of $1,300 with our t-shirt drive. And then you're like, that actually, that gives 13 weeks of what you're talking about to families. And that yeah. putting it in that perspective, I'm like, that's awesome. So now I felt, awesome. I felt like really good about that. Every single family gets $125 a week for extra groceries or food or whatever they want to do with it. So, you know, $1,300 is, I think, 10 or 11 weeks of groceries for a family, which is insane. That's like three months of groceries that's been paid for by these shirts. So that is, thank you. That is awesome. It helps a ton. We were super and their awesome. overheads are very low too, to interrupt. It's like 82 cents for every dollar goes directly to patient care. So that's actually considered to be pretty damn good on uh, the administrative stuff when you look at Red Cross and all those other places. Right. Wow. So you're in this luxury apartment. You have <laughs> a bunch of amenities and yet you're still, she's still fighting for her life more or less yeah, at this point. Exactly. So we are, you know, it's stabilized to some extent uh, after I think January 21st, we were discharged. She had her tumor still, you know, 40% of her tumor was present that was not removed in New York. Uh, she underwent two months of intensive chemotherapy, uh, which is their protocol that's being done at uh, St. Jude called SJYC07, um, which was, uh, I mean, crazy. She, we're talking like, the hardest of hardest chemos uh, she got in the highest of doses possible. Um, no one really knew what was to ex what to expect until we get her repeat imaging done after those first two cycles. So the plan was going to be, you know, if it looks like the tumor was status quo or shrunk after two cycles, at least it would get further devascularized and that would be a window of opportunity to remove it. Or we would do three cycles and then try to go in. So before her imaging at the two months, they kind of gave us this unofficial plan is they're gonna see what happens. And uh, to once again, some miraculous moment, the two months of chemo shrunk that residual 40% tumor by another 40 to 50%. Um, so Asim Chaudhary called me and he was like, this is you know, great news. The tumor has shrunk when you measure it out and this and that. Uh, 
fast forward like nine months after Imani's treatment is over, we actually had dinner with her oncologist and he told us we would have been happy if it just remained the same size. Hers actually devascularized and shrunk by nearly half after those two months. Wow. So they said that was on February 28th that she had her imaging done. So that was the end of cycle two. So on February 28th, Dr. Boop came in uh, in our office appointment, outpatient appointment, and he said that we're going in on Friday, March 6th, and we're going to go for what is called a GTR. Now, in the neurosurgical world, GTR means gross total resection. So essentially, why March 6th was probably the turning point for our family was even if a small piece of tumor was left in her, the type of tumor that she had, even if a tiny sliver was left in her, there is a 0% survival rate, mm. like 0% one-year survival rate, uh, if even a small portion of tumor is left behind. So this, is your, get, this is your turning point of glimmer of hope to fuck yeah, my kid's going to be okay. Yeah, it's, it's literally, no, it was all or nothing. That's yeah, it. It's, exactly it's right. if they, and if, if they get the full tumor out, then she has a shot at a cure. The, they had, the, the study that's not published was like, again, this is all like unofficial. We don't know the exact numbers or whatever because it still hasn't been published yet. But it was something like greater than 75% of kids had no recurrence at the 13-year mark. And 100% of the kids with her subtype, like her mutation, had no recurrence at the 13-year wow. mark. Yes. If they achieved- you get it out, you're gross, good. Yeah, if they achieved gross total resection. Yeah. So March 6th comes along and same thing, he, you know, we get admitted the night before the surgery and the feelings of weirdness are crazy because you know I'm just flashing back in PTSD to that December 15th night when she was going in for surgery. You know, she had emergency surgery a few hours later and I still remember waiting, you know, in the middle of the night for when they're going to be taking her in and holding her thinking this is the last time we're going to do it. And it was just such a different kind of dynamic where it's almost like an outpatient surgery we're having for her. You know what I mean? Right. So we get pre-admitted the night before our whole family, this time our whole family is there. My parents are there. My sister, uh, my sister came from Texas. My, my wife's parents came from New York. Uh, and she goes in for surgery on March 6th and Dr. Boop came out. I think I got a message at like the two hour mark. And they said, Dr. Boop wants to come talk to you in about 15 minutes or so. And in my head, I'm just like, shit, it's only been two hours. Uh, what's going on and he comes out and he literally says we got it all <laughs> oh. and, and uh he told us that when they opened her up the tumor was so devascularized and beaten up that it just slid out that's those were his exact words it just peeled out and uh Essentially, I guess the surgery that was done in New York really devascularized it. So it put like a speed bump on the growth. And then the, the chemo that they had done for those two months just beat the hell out of the tumor from a vascular standpoint. So it wasn't able to really feed on anything. And it was almost like a dead tumor at that point. Wow. I'm picturing like when you put a salicylate on a planter's wart, like one of those patches and <laughs> you pull the patch off and the whole thing exactly. just kind of... <laughs> so wow. what happened in the next... 
two minutes with uh, Dr. Boop in the room telling us this, and, and they achieved gross total resection. So the, the technology in, in St. Jude and Labonner is crazy. Awesome Chaudhary can tell you about this from PDG because you know, he's one of the biggest people involved in this is they have intraoperative MRI. So while my daughter is still open on the operating table before they suture her back up and close her up, literally open, skull open, the whole room is cleared and the MRI machine is brought in via a track into the operating room. <laughs> and while she's sitting on the operating room table under anesthesia, they do the MRI to show that they, to prove that they have gotten every last bit of tumor out. And then once it's confirmed by the radiologist, Awesome Chaudhary, she's closed, <laughs> she's closed back. Wow. So uh, they, they did it. And then, uh, so when he told us this, I'm an emotional person, as you can already tell by this uh, podcast going on Love right it. now. Yeah. Uh, I broke down and I apparently kissed Dr. Boop's hands <laughs> in, that, uh, in that surgical waiting room. I like collapsed his arms, hugged him, and kissed his hands, according to my wife. Was uh, he wearing shoes? He was wearing shoes. Oh. And I was, <laughs> he was wearing shoes. He was definitely <laughs> out by me, for sure. Um, You're used to that, man. This guy worked a miracle. And it's probably a miracle. I mean, time. unbelievable. I, yeah. I, there's no words to say. So that was the turning point of my daughter. So after that, she had four more months of chemo. The same hell, hellish chemo that was horrible with every, you know, horrible thing that happens with chemo happened with our infant daughter and that was hell on earth. And then, you know, we were discharged, I think on March 12th. So we're like, okay, now she's doing better. She's recovering. We're let's go like explore Memphis a little bit. Check this out. And then, COVID. Yay. <laughs> and I like literally, Unbelievable! Fuck COVID, man. That, that's all I can say. It just made life so much harder. So much um, more terrifying. For not only I mean, a newborn, but a supremely immune compromised. Almost her, her, white count was, her white count was zero. Yeah, her white count was zero. She literally had a, a zero white count. Uh, I remember these posts as well. If you ever know, wrapped up, and I think it, you like went on a walk, and that was like all you could really do. <laughs> yeah, we went on a walk inside St. Jude campus, you know, and then even that had to stop because I think after April, they only allowed one parent into St. Jude from that point on. And so during her, I was telling you, she was on, she's been, she was on chemo for this whole time. We would spend about two weeks in the hospital inpatient and two weeks in the apartment outpatient. So now from April, May, June, July, my wife is in the hospital two weeks a month. I am sitting in this apartment in Memphis two weeks a month. You know, she's like superwoman, breastfeeding and taking care of her and managing everything during chemo. Uh, you know, and I'm sitting in the apartment doing nothing, like feeling useless and in my feelings. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was horrible for all parties involved. And I think as a father even more so than a mom, like that feeling of helplessness is just, it's terrible. Cause we're, we're doers, right? Men are doers, right. we're fixers. And we're right. sitting here on a couch, probably not even able to watch Netflix cause you're just worried and you're just doing yeah. nothing but worrying, right? Right. So no, yeah. I, was, I was like, I felt like I was in college again, just trying to 
keep my mind off of things by either FaceTiming my wife and daughter, you know, 24 seven. And when I'm not on FaceTime with them, I would be playing PS4, like a college student. Like, you know, that was the other thing. Like, should I moonlight? Should I pick up some shifts in no. Memphis? But then, no, but then COVID happened. And obviously I'm not in any proper state of mind to begin with, but at the time it sounded reasonable. Uh, and I didn't because I didn't want to feel the guilt of bringing that home if something were to happen, you know? So I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah. What PS4 game are you playing? <laughs> what was, what the hell was that? The Call of Duty thing that everyone plays online. Uh, all right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we were playing uh, Modern Warfare online. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And all then right. <laughs> I'm Forza. I'm a huge car nut, so I'm a huge car nut. So I'd play Forza with my nephew. Oh, whatever passes the time, man. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm a Resident Evil fan, so in that. Case, oh, okay, nice. No, I couldn't do that. Survival, survival <laughs> They had one out on the uh, on the virtual reality, right? So yeah. We bought that. Me and my wife are nerds, and uh, I was playing that, and I would get like three minutes in and just go into a flop sweat because I'm just stressed oh out, and I had to just take it off, so I couldn't play. What that. a scary game to play by yourself, too. <laughs> oh man, in virtual reality, like when you wear headphones, it's like total immersion, and I'm like. You literally, I just start sweating. <laughs> yeah, you get like 10 bullets and 30 zombies. Yeah, not happening. And this one's even like different than the, the, the normal genre of it because you're just in this house and you're unarmed and it's like, yeah. like creepy and what, yeah, fuck that game. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> back to you. So it's April, you're sitting on your couch, kiddos holding strong, white count of zero, COVID, let's go. And uh, yeah, so we did nothing. We literally just stayed in our apartment, uh, you know, for those two weeks on and then two weeks I would drop them to the hospital. And uh, I became a PlayStation 4 expert during that time. <laughs> and uh, I guess wrote my online journal on Physician Dad Group every single day. <laughs> That's great. And how you vet, man. I'm sorry. That's how you vent. That's how you told. Yeah, you that's 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 what it was, and that's what it was. And then uh, you know, come I think May was the three month scan post operatively. Uh, no, nothing. No tumor growth. No recurrence. No nothing. Just perfect, disease free. It's called NED. No evidence of disease. Awesome. And then yep. So it's GTR and NED are the white guy name. I love it. Yeah, GTR, gross total resection, and NED, no evidence of disease. That's what you okay. want to hear. And then last thing was, you know, she had her uh, last bit of chemo, I think was June 27th or something like that was her last infusion. Um, but then, you know, once the last kind of cycle ends, it's the cycle of your counts dropping and then recovering. So we couldn't leave until her counts started at least recovering. So we left on uh, July 28th from uh, uh, Memphis. And that was the other thing. Her count still hadn't fully recovered because every cycle of chemo you get, your bone marrow gets a bigger beating and it takes longer for your, your counts to recover. Like the first cycle, I think it took like two weeks for her counts to recover, then three weeks, then four weeks, then five weeks. Then by the sixth cycle, it was taking like six to seven weeks for her counts to even start going up. So it took a good five-ish weeks before we noticed a somewhat of an uptrend. Hmm. So even though her counts were still low, we got the permission to go ahead to like head back to New York. But the only caveat was her counts were still too low for them to do the procedure to remove her chemoport. 
So because everything was scheduled for us to just like get out of there and I can't even tell you the, you know, immense homesickness we had amongst COVID and eight months. I'm sorry. Eight months. Yeah. Eight, eight months. Uh, yeah. That's insane. You know, and just being away for that long, we just wanted to get the hell home. So we said, you know what, we're leaving on the 28th as it was planned. I've already made arrangements for her port to be removed in two weeks in New York. Um, because me and my wife, we work for like one of the big hospital systems here in New York. We both work uh, for the same system. Mm -hmm. So it, it took like two seconds to find someone that could remove that uh, port, you know, uh, a couple weeks later. Um, and they were okay with it. We were okay with it. And we got on that plane and came home. It's amazing. Yeah. So now you have this, this kid who's thriving. She's not, she's not alive. She's thriving. Oh, she's thriving. It is, uh, every moment is a miracle. That's, that's all I can tell you, man. I, I keep saying all I can tell you because that's all I can tell you. It's a, every single moment is just such a blessing and such a miracle. And I think I am aware of that too. And that makes it even more special to some extent. And it makes it harder to some extent also, because then you get back in your feelings and you get back to the thoughts of uh, what the hell did we just go through? And what was this past year, I guess you could say, you know, navigating that childhood cancer scene is, it's a really, really big mind fuck. Uh, you know, it's a really horrible, shitty thing to go through. And if, you know, there's a hell on earth, that's what that is. That's, you know, the best way to describe it. Yeah. It's a, like a constant state of fear, right? So let's, let's talk about the fear here. So, um, you went through my biggest fear. So I'm, I'm not a hypochondriac. I'm, I'm not an alarmist. I'm probably closer to like what your wife is. If anything happens to the kids, yeah. I'm, oh, I'm sure it's fine. Right. But I, I still am kind of constantly looking for any sign of anything that, you know, should cause alarm. Like, so we personally went through two smaller, um, health alarms, right? Izzy, my oldest is three and a half at three days. She had a fever. Um, oh, no. my wife had broken a fever during a prolonged labor. So they're presumed right. sepsis. Should we LP everything like you, you know, yeah. but the LP and all that stuff, she ended up fine. Of course. And now oh, my, yeah. my one and a half year old has this, I, uh, you probably didn't even see it, but I posted on PDG, this little, um, some growth right here. That's not quite, um, the cleft cyst or anything. It's something lower, but, um, so like, there's like a little probably benign tumor going on, but, um, so like, these are, if, yours is a hundred mine's maybe a, a five so i can't even like picture let me let me any parent who is worried about the health of their kid it's devastating no matter what it is i right. mean but you went through this level of fear that i had for maybe an hour or maybe for a day for eight months yeah right so now you had this fear for eight months now you have this prognosis that everything should be fine for 13 years so how is this fear changed now? Is this like, uh, are you just kind of used to it? Or is it just gone? Like, how, how is this on, uh, like on a daily, your daily life? How is this? Well, that? It, it's never going to go away. Uh, you know, I, to be perfectly candid and frank with you, I mean, PTSD is very real about everything that, you know, me and my wife and my daughter kind of went through in the past nine months. Uh, obviously, my daughter is never going to remember anything, which is the silver lining in this. But me and my wife are pretty broken, uh, you know, after something like this. And I think for the rest of at least me and my wife's lives, 
we're going to worry about every little thing, right? If, if our daughter looks at us funny or if she, you know, coughs weird or if there's any small thing that any normal person would say, you know, is nothing, yeah. my yeah. mind is immediately going to go to brain tumor yeah, no God, matter what. She has a febrile seizure, which is normal for under two. Yeah, right? you know what I mean, right? Yeah. And so I think that's something that you can kind of compartmentalize in the back of your mind and, and all of this, and you can distract yourself. You know, my distraction now is I have my routine back, right? I'm back at work. Work is busy. Uh, I'm taking call. I'm like, you know, family is hanging out and back to normal and I'm back at home and, you know, day-to-day -day normal life stuff is happening again, which was on pause for the past eight months. So that to me is my little distraction where I don't have to think about, her being sick anymore because when I see her, she's just like a normal 11 month old kid now, you know what I mean? Which is incredible. And that, that also gets me crazy sometimes because I'm just like, you're a normal 11 month old kid, right? Like I'll give you one example today. We, we had her, when we got back to New York uh, in July, I went to go get her passport made just because I wanted to have her passport done. Mm. And the photo that was taken for her passport, she had just finished her chemo cycle. So no eyebrows, no eyelashes, no hair. You see her huge scar, her VP shunt on the side, and that's her passport photo. I got a letter in the mail like three or four days ago saying there was some error on her passport application form. So we have to like resubmit it and go back to the post office, do all this stuff. So when I went to the post office, the guy was like, oh, do you want to reuse the same photo or take a new one? And now her hair is back, her eyebrows are back, her eyelashes are back. Her hair is like beautiful, and and That'll I said no. Take, out of here. Jesus. take a new take a new photo because yeah. I don't want that fucking reminder every single day. I have enough reminders of what the past year was in all the day to day stuff. I at least don't want her to see it like when she's four years old on her passport or something like mm -hmm. that. You know what I mean? I can. Re I'm never gonna forget it. My wife is never gonna forget it. We're never. We're scarred. We have that's that's done damage i guess you could say but i don't want her to like be defined by this for the rest of her life which you know uh, i guess is easier said than done but i want her to have as normal a <laughs> childhood as possible with you know saint jude sprinkled in there for follow-ups once a year that's like that would be amazing yeah cool. Uh, you're talking about damage scarred how has you and your wife's relationship been affected by this Oh my God. We already had an incredible relationship. Like I, me and my wife have been together since we were teenagers. We, we started dating when I think she was 17. I was 19. She was a freshman in college. And uh, we went through every life event together since we were kids in that way. And you know, yeah, our families are, our families are super close. We, I'm so close to her parents and vice versa. And you know, it's, it's just, it's as beautiful as a marriage could be, I guess you could say. I, I have nothing but like, she is the best thing in my life. That's that's the best way to describe it. And and to see the grace that she had with not only like keeping our daughter alive, but maintaining my sanity. Uh, I don't think anyone else could have done this except for her. Uh, like to say that she's like a pillar of strength is like an understatement. Like I broke down every day. I was a fucking mess every single day. I, I still am a mess, you know, pretty much every other day. The strength she has is just, I, I've never, it's like superhuman. Um, and 
the res the respect that I have for her, forget like the love and this and that, but the respect is just, I mean, there's no higher person in this world in my life than my wife. Um, I love that. And, I'll, and that's yeah. how it should be. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, so let's, let's head back to Monty. Uh, first birthday is coming up. So yeah. question A, how are we looking on, on her milestones? Because obviously you survive um, something like this and then you get concerned with, well, what's the quality of life going to be? Yeah. She, to me, she looks great. So what, how is she looking yeah. at her milestones? She's, she's, doing, she's doing amazing. So um, in terms of milestones, she's picking up everything like she should be. The only, I guess you could say, two noticeable things uh, that is a residual from everything was chemotoxicity affected her hearing uh -huh. because the high dose chemotherapy protocol that you know they have about 75 percent of the kids get moderate to severe hearing loss which requires hearing aids so she got hearing aids again custom made top of the line hearing aids paid for fully by saint jude um and very very small in the scheme of things that could go wrong right and it's corrected like in the sense of her uh -huh. hearing is normal with her hearing aids in and then number okay. two she has a little bit of a uh, right hand. It's not even weakness. It's more of like a neglect, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. So for quite a while, she didn't even know she really had a right hand. She would grab everything with her left hand and reach across things to, you know, only use, utilize this. So she's been getting pretty intensive uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy. Um, and now it's interesting because she's like using her left hand to raise her right hand and, and do things that way. So she's compensating in that way. Kind of using um, a tool as opposed to her own hand. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Eventually, so hopefully um, that just acclimates to normalcy. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, I would say she's probably about two months behind where she should be. And that's, and that's what considering I'm, what she went through. Yeah. That's, I mean, she just started peekabooing the other day. So, you know, she's 10 and a half months old, something Did like that right now. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I mean, she's like pulling up the blanket to hide her and then she drops it and looks for a reaction. So she knows like what she's doing. Have you done the thing yet where you hold the blanket up, throw it and run? And then no, I haven't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I should record her doing that. Yeah. I should do that. There was a dog video like that. I think, oh, yeah. The kids react the same way as dogs. Like the little, they're like, <laughs> you know, younger. Yeah, a year and a half and younger. I, I did it to my youngest. It's great. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so, so first birthday plans. So we were obviously, before COVID, the plan was madness. I, I told my wife, I told everyone at St. Jude at Le Bonheur, we are going to have a first birthday that's bigger than any wedding you've ever been to. That was like... <laughs> that was my plan. Uh, COVID changed that for sure. Um, I think the plan right now is going to be doing like kind of a drive-by sort of thing. Me and my wife were thinking about having like to-go boxes of food, have the driveway set up really beautifully um, with like cake and all of this Mad stuff. Cake, yep, have, on the driveway. Yep, have windows of time for people to just drive through and we give them their food in the car and they can wave to Imani and all of that sort of stuff. It's an Imani parade, except Imani is the stationary one. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, I think that's kind of the tentative plan for November right now, Maybe. weather pending in New York. 
so so my youngest turned one in March. Uh, oh, that's I'm, awesome. I'm sure I'm sure you remember uh, in the winter months, Mandalorian was this big deal, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Nerd, I loved it. I watched it twice. Yeah, Master Show, watch it if you haven't, everybody. Uh, so we were planning the the Mandalorian one birthday. Nice. Her first birthday, and her birthday was a week after COVID hit. Oh my god! And so we had all of the we had all the decorations. We had fucking lightsabers. She had her Yoda costume. Uh, oh, Izzy no. Ray. And it's still all sitting in our fucking guest room. <laughs> that sucks, man. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be so cool. But uh, yeah, man, that sounds like a, a lovely, beautiful time with all the friction you guys have been through to, to be able to celebrate this, this birthday upcoming. No, we're, we're so excited. And I mean, like I said, it's just everything. The perspective is fully changed on everything now, right? It's like, every single moment that we have with her where she looks at, and she, she's transformed into this just happy kid. That's the other thing that I don't think I've mentioned. She had a reputation at St. Jude for just being grumpy all the time and have like, <laughs> she had the best RBF. Like every nurse knew, every nurse knew that. Like Imani gave you the worst look, you wouldn't mess with her. Everyone knew that. That was like her thing at St. Jude. And then when we came home, she just transformed into this like happy-go-lucky kid where I am no exaggeration. I wake up every morning to her like smiling or or some or laughing or something. That's like she sleeps with me and my wife. I don't care what the guidelines are. She sleeps with me and my yeah. wife. Yeah. After this, she sleeps with me and my wife. So yeah. every morning we wake up, my alarm clock is her laughing. And I don't think there's anything better in this world than that for nope. a father nope. um oh my gosh it's it, she's just happy all the time she's when she's she gets cranky when she's about to sleep or if she's hungry like every other kid fine but 95 percent of the rest of the day she's smiling period she knows what she went through yeah <laughs> i hope not well in, in a sense right she went yeah. from a chaotic probably almost painful world to now this yeah. happy loving home yeah and this is what she knows now. And so she smiles. Yeah. Um, you guys gonna have baby too? We will at some point. Good. There's nothing like, there's nothing like watching the two of them play. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the other cool thing is, uh, so my sister has two kids that are teenagers, but my wife's sister has three girls all under the age of five. Whew. So uh, now, you know, it was always in the books that, Imani and then our three nieces were just kind of all sisters to some extent. So, you know, we make sure uh, they're in healthcare and everything also. So we make sure that we're, we're like sort of bubbled with them, I guess you could say. Those kids right. are together a lot. That's awesome. Because that's really important to us. All right. So uh, any advice for parents in general? <laughs> oh, no, don't take it from me. Hey, your dad. Your dad. No, <laughs> no. I had a very different experience than what. But it also makes you appreciate what you have a lot more. <laughs> no, it's you know cliche stuff, right? It's don't don't sweat the small stuff. I guess you could say, and just appreciate every moment. That's that's it. There's there's nothing like it's cliche. Just every single moment with your child is just such a blessing. Uh, you know, having a healthy thriving child, having normalcy at home, having a routine, 
those are things that we just take for granted that we don't realize how much of a blessing it is. Uh, you know, early on when we went to Memphis, I read a meme that was like one of the most underrated blessings is leaving your home and coming back to it safe. Right. And uh, I never fully appreciated that moment until I pulled up into my driveway after nine months away from home with yeah. my daughter in a car seat in the back and my wife next to me. And leaving with a very low chance of coming back as a whole unit. Yeah. Yeah. So like this don't sweat the small stuff is probably the best advice you can get and the best advice you can actually take. Right. Yeah. So like, our kids don't sleep great. And every yeah. night we're like, get all pissy. Like, Oh, they're waking again. You know, like that's such a small thing. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, there's no reason to get upset about those sort of things. No, this is beautiful. They just, they want us, right? Yeah, They're awake it. and they want us. My, so it's yeah, amazing. my overall goal in life, you know, here's a takeaway thing was when my daughter was on hospice, the only thing that really kept going in my mind was, you know, I want her to know that she's loved no matter what. That was like, just replaying in my mind when we were on hospice and she had a really poor prognosis and, you know, she smiles all the time now. And I, I think she knows that. And I, I, you know, I just want parents to have that same kind of feeling with their kids. I think uh, you having her sleep in your bed and her waking up laughing is a, an easy testament <laughs> to that. So um, I'm going to put you on the spot. I meant to text you about this. Uh, yeah. I want to start asking guests, do you have a recommendation for listeners? It can be a Twitter follow, a book to read, a movie to watch, a Netflix show to watch, a song to listen to, anything. And I can edit it out if you've got nothing off the top of your head. Frank Sinatra, anything. Like any, uh, I think Sinatra got me through a lot in... Uh, in Memphis. I, I don't know what it was. It, maybe it was just the New Yorker in me or dancing with my daughter when she would come off of chemo in our apartment. Uh, yeah, I could listen to Frank Sinatra and that would make anything better at any point in time. That's awesome. <laughs> Frank, you Twitter gotta... and, and news don't just don't right now because the world sucks right right uh, it's all big echo chamber depending on who you follow yeah just don't it's well, sometimes there's so. funny people to follow on twitter right so funny people to follow on twitter i would look like some recommendations for that because everything else sucks <laughs> <laughs> i'll agree with you on that one cool frank you got any questions for him before we let him get back to his family <laughs> well i think we lost frank <laughs> <laughs> so, so epic man that um, no just thank you for coming on the show um sorry i was kind of distant i just wanted to let the let the show man shit it's, it's all good appreciate you being on the show and uh i really appreciate the story and giving hope for being uh a parent loving loving your family and um it's just an amazing story and a, and a tough time overall yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, we appreciate it, man. Uh, we'll, we'll get this up probably by the end of the week and we'll, we'll send it out to our, our group to, to listen. Yeah, awesome. Hey, thank you so much. A, thank you so much for donating and doing everything for St. Jude. I like cannot tell you how important and how incredible uh, that is. Uh, it helps so many people in literally the worst time of their life. 
And uh, that made a huge difference uh, to a lot of families. And you should know that. Yeah. So everyone donate to St. Jude's when you got it. All right. I'm going to stop recording here. It's been Perfect. great. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another can't miss episode of just a couple dudes or jacked podcast. We're new on Twitter. So please give us a follow at at J A K D pod on Instagram. You can follow us at J A K D underscore podcast. And we have a new YouTube channel set up at just a couple dudes. And that's couple with a K. We also have a website, jakdpod.com, with a new store set up where you can check out our merch and other fun items that we're going to be putting up. So please give us a follow, check out our website, and tune in for the next podcast that we'll be releasing shortly. Thanks. Mm -hmm.